This is Our American Story, and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests. Folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times bestselling author. Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. I think you need to take a run. <laughs> well, Dean, I have a beer, yeah. I don't have a beer and run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and what are the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today? I was born in Los Angeles. So California, born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister, uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school. And my dad was working two jobs, so I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. And she said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention? I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild. And I just remember sitting there in that classroom just, you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention. So you know, I, I think that's just all of us. <laughs> We're both alike, yeah. <laughs> and so tell me this. You, you, you then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid. Well, there's this idea of never stop exploring. And in running, it's very symbolic. You know, I ran, uh, I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old. So that's, you know, 26.2 miles. And I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run. Uh, and then I heard about people running further than that. And I, I couldn't believe it. I heard about a 50-mile foot race, and I thought that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. i got to try it. <laughs> so I signed up, and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50-mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified and I'm thinking, qualified for what? For the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western State's 100-mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop. I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no, the starting gun goes off, and you run as though you're running, you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And, I, and that just was so, it was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And, and then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, 
what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was you know, the most extreme temperatures on Earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. i got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will. And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers. And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly. And it was a hobby for them. It, they were tinkering for them. And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean. I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how, how odd. And I go, no, how American? Because we Americans do this all the time. Uh, well, you know, and ha- let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX, uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as, you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the, the, the largest desert, it's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's it's you know <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races you know you get, you might get a, a medal or a trophy i mean there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these but i just love the challenge of of you know of of, of actually bettering yourself and that's what it comes down to it's you know can you um you know can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that you know, you're just testing your own limits. You want to know what you can do or can't do in the end, Dean, and your challenges. It's just your own personal challenge in the end. You don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors, do you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like I've failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do, it's it's more about survive. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles in a 100 mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're you know you're 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 rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it it is really uh, just about survival more than anything else. Well, what led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons. You know, a guy told me he was part of this 50-marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for ten and a half years. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have ten and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in ten and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and, and see the country and, and run while you're out there. See the country at you know eight miles an hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus. The ultra marathon man, and Dean is a writer, a raconteur, and we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Carnassus's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and we return to our conversation with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. And, and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tabula rosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. Talk about a little of that Greek DNA, because we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, It's been said that, you know, that that no other no other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're, <laughs> we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, Greeks are very independent. Um, even the you know the early Greek city states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks, you know, the Greeks have said we can't turn anywhere else. I mean, we're kind of we, we've got to help ourselves. They've been very self-reliant. Is is one quality that I've seen with Greeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're a, a definitely a minority. I, I think that uh, Greek-Americans make up um, something less than, you know, half a percent of the U.S. population. But um, per capita, there are more Greek PhDs than any other class, and it's millionaires as well. There are more Greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is, again, per capita. It's a right. very small small base of people, yeah. Yeah, and I'm Lebanese, and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And i got to tell you, Dean, not many people. I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, to, to the uh, nature of the American experiment. And the American people, they're really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore him and get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> And that's just how- I've got Lebanese friends. I know what you're talking about. They're they one knuckle. They're funny people. Really great people. Yeah, yeah, we always just say let's just turn something really ugly into something funny. Yeah, um, we life's short. So let's talk back to that 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. You you started in St. Louis on September 17th, 2006 with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November 5th, 2006 with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights. Some lowlights, too, Dean, because there have got to be moments, even inside you, where you're going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Plenty of those moments. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for, for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, 
my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them. So she'd basically homeschool them as we're driving around the country for 50 days. Their schools were sending them these lesson plans, emailing them to my mom every Sunday night, and she'd teach the lesson throughout the week. And we all of a sudden became like the a, a, a kind of this traveling um, roadshow where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious, you know, what were the experiences they were having. And then their parents learned about it. So now all their parents were following us. And people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out like we'd have 50, 60 people show up at the starting line of a race in Iowa on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's great. And, and Yeah, no, and marathons were flying from Alaska. A guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood, they can sisterhood that came together. Um, so that was the, you know, the, the really uh, poignant and, and beautiful moments. You know, some of the low moments were, I remember running a, a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold, and the next day I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees running through the desert, and I remember finishing the race thinking, this is marathon 19. I can barely walk. You know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it um, and just, you know, kept that American spirit. Just said, you know, when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon. Just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom and splash some water in your face. You know, okay, that's great. Just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time. Okay, lace up your shoes. Okay, get out the door. <laughs> get to the starting line. Okay, just start running. Just put one foot in front of the other. Uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge as well as a physical one. Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not anything else but these two simple words, next play. Not the play before, and not three plays, five plays, in the next game, or the NCAA Finals. Just next play. And so many of the kids and, and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating that way. Well, and it's more approachable. You're right. Um, it, with running, you know, it gets very granular. I just say, you know, instead of next play, it's next step. Yep. Next step. Next step. Because you tend to look at the mile markers, especially during a marathon. You know, you might be at mile, you might see a mile marker that says mile 18, which means, you know, you basically have over eight miles to go. And, you know, you might be cramping at that point. You know, you might just be completely exhausted. It's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done, don't do that. I just say next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. Next step, next step. So I really, I can relate to that next play mentality. Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think, how to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip, because my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave, uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was r jogging across the country like? And by the way, what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50-day in 50-state uh, adventure, and what did your family learn? 
Well, you know, I, I learned we're, we're a very diverse country. I mean, you, you, you hear this said all the time, and it's almost cliche, but the regional differences, um, not just with the food and, you know, the dialect, but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Um, but the one, the one, you know, the, the one uniting thing is that we're all free, and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running, and there'd be 40 or 50 people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out, in the, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm, and people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So, we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that, that divide us, right? Be it, you know, our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the God we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality. All of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of, you know, the food we ate, um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side. Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, and this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, you're not talking. And, I'll go with the latter. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll go with the latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people. You're not going to get them in an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. And we're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultramarathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries? And just all around hurting. Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? <clears throat> you do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple of days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco. There was a marathon in Oakland. 
I got it. I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So you do a lot of, of running. And I also do a lot of cross-training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, when I say cross-training, I mean what's called high-intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury, overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet, my cross-training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and it also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as, possible, you know, as I can and do everything um, with that lens. And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise, uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, uh-huh. and it's just incredible. T- t- tell me this, in mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running. Um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a, I'm a, I'm an introvert, um, you know, just by nature. So running to me, and if you saw where I ran up in the hills um, north of San Francisco, uh, it's it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think that you know, unfortunately, that's that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species. Is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature. And to me, that's you know that that's part of the human experience, and it what's, it makes me feel spiritually enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills. Um, and, you know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yep. You know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours. Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable, and it's these wide-open spaces and this peace of mind and having to fill up your own space. Well, I know. I, you know it's, it's, ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. 
And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate into this as I'm running, and and then I type up my notes. And you know, even Nietzsche said the only you know the the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. (laughs) And I you know, so I I can completely relate to what you're saying there. Oh, so it's so true. And and talk to us about the diet thing because you had said you know eating really was a a fundamental part uh, of you and your performance. And so talk about that. Uh, that 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 regiment that you go through, and what you eat and what you don't eat, and why? Yeah, so I've I've really refined my diet over the years, and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that you know leave me feeling lethargic and you know kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet, and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food, nothing that that has to go through a machine or be refined. So. Um, I don't eat any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was a Neanderthal man. Um, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's it's just, you know they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either, so it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped in everything I do. This, you know, Jack LaLanne, you must know Jack LaLanne. Sure, yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book, Dean. Um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can. Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey, and it's about the original marathon and the, the Greek runner Phidipides, or Phidipides, that ran the marathon. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well. So, uh, you know, ironically, right now the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history. And I'm not a historian, but I delve very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that to me was fascinating. I think that's something that, that you know, we look at the the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all this in the book. You know, there's one point in time where you say, at the start, I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I'd been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother? You just mentioned him. And that feeling, running and starting to run by the Acropolis. Yes, yeah, so that ancient brother, was. his name was Phidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemodromi, they were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was to, when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, 
the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle. And it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to talk about everything. Well, everything except the following. Uh, we don't do Republicanese or Democraties. Uh, we don't do hard right, hard left. We don't do politics. We don't do opinion. So if you want that or news, well, you're on the wrong dial. I'm, I urge you to switch. Um, but if you're looking for stories, if you're looking for something interesting, something you care about, something you didn't know about but you're going to know about, um, stick around. I think you'll like what you're about to hear. We do everything, the arts uh, and sports. We love talking about sports. And today we're going to talk about the very first Super Bowl. And by the way, I'm old enough to remember it. And I was a big sports fan. My dad was. My whole family was. And Americans love the Super Bowl. And so here with our version of this day in history, because on this day in history, the very first Super Bowl was played, Greg Hengler is recorded with his pal, Mr. Anonymous, the following piece. On this day in 1967, Americans huddled around their televisions for what has now been called the very first Super Bowl. I say now because this first best of contest between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers had not yet been labeled the Super Bowl but was simply called the World Championship Game. Packers quarterback Bart Starr earned the game's MVP, but the Packers' greatest asset was on the sideline, head coach Vince Lombardi. In the mid-1960s, the intense competition for players and fans between the National Football League, NFL, and the upstart American Football League, AFL, led to talks of a possible merger. It was decided that the winners of each league's championship would meet each year in a single game to determine the world champion of football. Since postseason college games were known as bowl games, AFL founder Lamar Hunt suggested that the new pro championship be called the Super Bowl. 
The term was officially introduced in 1969, along with Roman numerals to designate the individual games. In 1970, the NFL and AFL merged into one league with two conferences, each with 13 teams. Here's a look at that first championship game. On January 15, 1967, on a bright, clear day in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the big question which had troubled the football world for seven years was answered. For the first time, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, played the Kansas City Chiefs, the best team in the American Football League. The game was the first concrete evidence of the merger of the two leagues, and it was played for the highest stakes ever, $15,000 per man for the winning players. The Super Bowl was seen by the largest sports audience in the history of television. 65 million people watching the broadcast on two networks. Thousands of people here in the stands and there are millions of people on television and everyone looking and all with speculation to see what kind of a game the Green Bay Packers are going to play today. Right? Right. right. I want you to be proud of your profession. It's a great profession. You be proud of this game and you can do a great deal for football today. Great deal for all the players and the league and everything else. Go out there and play this ball game like I know you can play it. Let's go. Lombardi's pregame attempts to inspire his team had achieved the opposite effect. He made us so cautious that in the first half, we literally played, making sure we didn't make a mistake. When you're concerned and you're so intimidated by the situation, then sometimes it takes away the, the real heart of what you do. We were tight. I mean, anybody would have been tight in that situation. But also, Kansas City was really good. I mean, they had some great, great football players. In the early going, we didn't protect the passer well. Bart got hit. He got hit by my man. I know that. Starr wasn't the only Packer on the turf. When Boyd Dowler re-injured his shoulder, his sleep-deprived and hungover replacement was sent in. Now we have our first sub of the game. Dowler is going out, and Max McGee now is coming in as flanker. Well, when Boyd goes down, I said, uh-oh. Well, this is the very thing I was concerned about. And the flip side of that, though, based on his ability to be a clutch performer when called upon, I just had a gut feeling that Max would be ready, and he was. He steps in, and he plays like gangbusters. Dale to the right, McGee to the left, star dropping straight back, hit as he throws, Despite McGee's unexpected heroics, the Chiefs kept the game close. The Packers had seen enough. In the third quarter, Lombardi turned the dogs loose on defense. The Chiefs were held scoreless for the rest of Super Bowl I, and Max McGee couldn't be stopped. With a mixture of satisfaction and relief, the now-relaxed Packer bench could enjoy their Super Bowl win along with their unflappable team. What a day! It's the stuff of legend, and it should be. 
And Bart got the most valuable player because he earned it, but they probably should have split it and had co-MVPs because Max had that great a game. In this superb spectacle of a sport, even the losers can find some satisfaction. Back to cornfields, huh? On another day in another year, it will surely be the turn of the AFL. But this spectacle of a sport belonged to Green Bay. Even though it is a national tournament, the award was initially inscribed with the words World Professional Football Championship. It was officially renamed in 1970 in memory of Vince Lombardi after his death from cancer to commemorate his leading the Green Bay Packers to victories in the first two Super Bowls. After the game was over, a reporter asked Vince Lombardi if he thought Kansas City was a good team. Lombardi responded, that he did not think Kansas City was good enough to play in the NFL, comparing them to NFL championship game loser Dallas. The first Super Bowl is the only one to have been simulcast in the United States by two networks. NBC had the rights to nationally televise AFL games, while CBS held the rights to broadcast NFL games. Both networks were allowed to televise the game. The first Super Bowl's halftime entertainment consisted of college bands from the University of Arizona and the University of Michigan. On average, 80 to 90 million people are tuned into the Super Bowl at any given moment, while some 130 to 140 million watch at least some part of the game. The last five Super Bowls have been the five most watched telecasts in U.S. television history. Prior to that. The most-watched telecast was the MASH finale in February 1983, with 106 million viewers. And nine of the ten most-watched U.S. television programs in history were Super Bowls. Finally, no Super Bowl has ever gone into overtime. The first Super Bowl, this day in history. Great job on that piece, Greg, and I remember that game, and I remember what a joke people thought the AFL was. Oh, the AFL, what a waste. This is so silly. There's the NFL, that's real football, and there's the AFL, how goofy. And, of course, by Super Bowl III, everything changed. That was the then-Baltimore Colts and Johnny Unitas against this upstart Joe Namath with his handlebar mustache and his white shoes, Broadway Joe, And the unbeatable Colts, big point favorites, get beat 16-7. 16-7 by the AFL. And that's when it became official. There was parody, and no one ever joked about the AFL again. The upstarts taking it to the old, old, original National Football League. This is Lee Habib. This Day in History, as always, brought to you by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always get to you with their terrific online courses. There are over a dozen there now. The one on C.S. Lewis is terrific. And Constitution 101, well, I learned more watching that than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. And this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put them together, and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves. Your stories are as good as any we put together. This next story is a really good one. We love telling you stories about people you should know, but don't, and particularly about innovators in their field. Because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, well, I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, all true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine, but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's going to be full of dead joggers. There's more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts, where he would refine his big idea, aerobics. The groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death. A medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care, and we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. 
As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner. And he was pretty darn close, running a 4 minute and 30 second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. They got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and my got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing but eat. I gained up at 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened that changed my life. Been an excellent water skier during my youth. And at 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to see it, ski a slalom course at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia that hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over at the site, got me on to the emergency room. The time I got to the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workup back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. Only thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow ski back in 2004. But what happened to me, Prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I was planning on being an ophthalmologist. An orthopedic surgeon. I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me. I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly, run the Boston Marathon twice, became a quote unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health, worked on Doctor of Science next year left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts, developed the aerobic program while I was in the Air Force. So that episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life, and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age, and they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper's a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military. But you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. Until after I left, that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son Tyler, had a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog Christy, the Cocker Spaniel, we moved at the Grapes of Wrath, from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something of your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000. That was all, you don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. But I went to savings and loans and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. That they loaned me the money, no interest, for six months to pay, no interest. And so I was able to buy the property. And then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here, early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month to pay my other two employees. I lived on savings. So it was tough. And they got to Dallas and uh, went from, from the, fire to, from the fry, frying pan to the fire because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. 
After years of refining and practicing aerobics, and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because of his emphasis on vitamins, but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but changed their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation of mouth that had a total body effect that actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school, and all these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline, all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, you'd have a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves, releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association, said for the first time in all these years, that your aerobic capacity is a major point of risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health 
published an interesting study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow-up, 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption. Five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years. Almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's not come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted, had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, will do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right, exercise. Again, at the time, people thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter. And if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help, but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town. And he heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program. 
because most common first sentiments of your heart disease is sudden death. Give no about it until it's too late. He heard me say that. And so he came in my little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped it in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Said, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're unhospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician. And that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful and intelligent pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at a high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000-foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guide, what's it going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go to 14,000, but up and back one day. But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. 
I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yes, I had a Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was here yesterday. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing. I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come. He was an overbook. I took today. What didn't plan on taking a patient today. But I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO. He's not CEO. He's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at 87 years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson family office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back, and uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day. And when you go in and you spend some time with him, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, This is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life, but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness, it's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our Don't Be a Fool series with Frank Hanna and we have regular contributors on this show who aren't famous but they never chose to be they're just really smart have done some remarkable things in their lives and every community has someone like this and Frank's one of those people from the Atlanta area that we thought the world should know and Frank's life didn't start off like the rest of the kids My father was not the traditional guy who would take the sons out for hunting and fishing. He'd come home from collecting rent at his apartment units and we'd sit on the kitchen table and count the dollars out and he'd talk to us about depreciation and it was quite an education. I started trying to think about how to make money when I was about 14. I wanted to be able to take girls out for dates and my father was not gonna pay for dates. At an earlier age than I would have thought, I had more money than I had anticipated. And I thought to myself, what now? Sort of along the lines of the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. Don't blow this. Don't be a fool. And now it's time for our latest installment of our Don't Be a Fool series. And it's called Risky Business. I tell kids in college and just out of college now, when they're looking for what they can do, you got to find a place you can create value for people. You got to find a niche where you can create value. I mean, our own business was in the financial world because I'd kind of had familiarity with that going through college. I majored in finance. I had an idea when I was in a class, a finance class in college about a potential business that was in a, a new sector of the financial world. And I actually asked my professor about it, and he said, I don't really know of anybody doing that kind of thing. It was, it was esoteric. I mean, usually the new business opportunities are pretty esoteric because if you say, well, I want to go uh, uh, build a better search engine, okay, fine, but I mean, Google's, you know, give it a shot. Or I want to go build a new hotel chain. You, you can do that, but that's a business there are a lot of significant players in. So, so usually I think, and, and to find a niche where you can actually bring value to people and then see where that goes. And I, and I have people then say, well, I don't, I don't know how to find a niche. And I say, look, if almost any business you go into, if you go in into that business and you work hard, watch and see the places where people get frustrated. 
and then say, could this be done better? And in almost any business you ever go to, almost any place you ever go, you will find something that is irritating people, that is frustrating them, that is not done as well as it could be. And then it's just a matter of whether you are devoted enough to try to solve that problem. Because if you deliver value to people, you will receive value. And I'm not kidding you, we could walk outside of my office now and I could find 15 things wrong with what I see and think to myself, you know what, that, that could be done better. So you start small. And my son-in-law just, he, he, was, he was started in the insurance business and he saw a little niche and so he started his own business a couple of years ago. You get one client, then you get another client, and then you're off and running. But you know, a lot of the, you come up with an idea and then there's so many mundane things that have to be done, you know. Sometimes people want to bring me an idea and they want me to sign a confidentiality agreement with it and all that to look at their business plan. And I think to myself, you don't realize, it's not the secret potion that you've put together in this business plan. The question is whether you can execute on it. Execution is just enormously important. When you look at something like Microsoft, there was no real secret potion there. You know, they, they didn't come up with some unbelievably new idea like Einstein's theory of relativity. It was the way they executed and figured out, well, you know, IBM's building a personal computer, but they don't really have the operating software. And if we could do this and we could go get a contract with IBM and they would license our software. And a lot of kind of mundane sort of business. They needed to understand coding. They didn't have to be the best coders in the world. They needed to understand it. You know, if you look at the iPhone now, a lot of that is just the execution of figuring out where can we get a factory that can produce it to this level, but at this cost factor. And there are a lot of things that go into a business that are mundane, exhausting execution challenges. And that's the stuff that's not all that glamorous. What we think is glamorous is, oh no, I have a great idea. You have a great idea, so I'm sure there's people I can hire who will do this, because don't you see, I came up with this genius idea. No, 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 the, the genius is in the getting it done. So. We ended up getting our capital, and this is, this is where sometimes, as you meet people, I don't really agree with, sometimes I hear people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. I don't agree with that. But I do think being kind and friendly to everyone you meet. You don't know when that might sort of redound back, you know? So you end up meeting somebody who knew somebody who heard about this, and all of a sudden we're getting our first credit line from Cargill, which at that time was the largest privately owned business in the world. They trade grain, and they have been, they've been like grain providers and storage and crops and foodstuffs for over a hundred years, but they also, had a financial arm because they operated all over the world and needed to be doing hedging of currencies and stuff like that and they were getting into a lot of interesting financial products and so a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy puts us in touch with Cargill in Minneapolis and they did our first two big credit lines but yeah it started with and and that's where it comes I think the notion of networking does help to, to be meeting people and speaking about business uh, some people think that that's the entirety of the, the success, uh, you know, again, the who you know, not what you know. I don't agree with that. But I think being kind to people you've met such that 
if they meet someone who they might put you in touch with, that's likely to happen because you've treated them well. And plus it's a better way to live, just being kind and nice to people and not bullying your way through. Because you bully your way through, that gets around too. Listen, I think we're all, we are all wary of rejection. For, for obvious reasons, rejection hurts. There may be a different story for every entrepreneur why they're not quite as concerned about rejection. I think most of us are risk averse. People say that entrepreneurs love risk. I'm not sure that's right. I think entrepreneurs measure risk differently. And so, for instance, when I left, I practiced with a major law firm for two years, and then I left. Now, many people thought that's risky, because you stay with that law firm, you're going to make partner in another six years, and you'll make good money, and you'll be set for life. I thought it was a greater risk for me to stay at that law firm. So what much of the world would say, oh, well, you're entrepreneurial, that's why you left, because you like risk. No, no, no. I'm entrepreneurial and therefore I measure risk differently. To me, the risk of for 40 more years staying in a place where I didn't think that's what I wanted to do or was called to do, to me, that risk was far greater than leaving the law firm and falling on my face. If I leave the law firm, fall on my face, I get back up and I'll do something else. But if I stay there for 40 years doing something I don't like, boy, that's a big risk. So I measure the risk differently. And I think that's actually what's happening with most entrepreneurs. We think that they're risk takers. We're all taking a risk. D continue to do what you're doing today is taking a risk. We're all making decisions about the future. Even if all you do is pull the shades and stay inside that day, you are making a decision about how you're gonna spend today. So let's concede. We're all making decisions about the future, which means we're all consciously or subconsciously predicting the future. We don't know what's gonna happen in the future, which means we are all consciously or subconsciously taking a risk every day. So one of the things we ought to get good at is accurately assessing the risk of what we're doing. And where's the greater risk? Because many times, a lot of mistakes in life, I believe, are made from the inaccurate assessment of risk. So people say, well, it's risky to get married. And I say, and it's risky to die lonely. It's risky to, to be by yourself for the rest of your life. And I don't, mean, I don't mean that as a slight to people who have lived by themselves, okay? You can be happy like that, but I think most people have a greater chance of happiness and fulfillment if they do get married. And like I said, I, don't, I, I want to be very careful. I, I, I know many people who have not done that who are wonderful people and, and have good lives. But I think that's better for most people to get married. And so, you know, when, when young people are facing that decision, yes, it's risky to get married. It's risky not to get married. And thanks to Frank for sharing these thoughts with us. And we look forward to more. And I think it's just so important what he said about entrepreneurs. And it's not that we like risk-taking, it's that we measure risk, and we all do it every day. Frank is also the author of the books What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well, and also A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Don't Teach You in College 
that could make all the difference. You can pick up both at Amazon.com. And if you've got someone like Frank Hanna in your neighborhood, in your part of the country, someone wise, someone smart about whatever they do, send that person's information to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Don't Be a Fool series with Frank Hanna, here on Our American Stories. 